Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Musty Time Studio on August 1st, 2022, here from the delightful Space Coast of Florida. And joining me from Atlanta is Joshua Hensley, who is a very experienced independent consultant in the technical and crypto space. Joshua, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So it's a bright Monday. All sorts of havoc has been happening in, in uh, recent weeks. And maybe you kick off by giving us a quick overview of kind of your focus and your career path and how you got involved in Bitcoin and the rest. And we'll just take it from there. Yep. So I was a ERP consultant for about seven years at a top accounting firm here in the U.S. I did that right out of school. And my focus was... Um, we would implement Microsoft Dynamics AX, which is a enterprise resource planning system for businesses, primarily for uh, so-called middle market companies. Mm. So I was more on the technical side, but I would also, I, would, I did a lot of travel. So my role was mainly being part of a team of five or so, would go out to different clients. And these projects would take anywhere from six months to two, three years. And we would just implement this new software to run their business for them. So it did... Mm. Accounts receivable, accounts payable, inventory, warehousing, shipping, all that type of stuff. And as time went on, a specialty of mine became credit card processing. So we had to, in, but we had to integrate that separate from the ERP system. And it was it was always really a big, huge pain because um, just there's so many technical and legal challenges with that because you're talking about doing payments and then fraud, you know, protecting the businesses from fraud. Right. making sure the customer's data is protected. I mean, honestly, it's it's really bad. I don't think people realize how terrible credit cards are for the merchant on the merchant oh, side. Yeah, yeah. Or horrible. It's great for the credit card company. Merchant, not so much. Yeah. Um, so when I started finally paying attention to Bitcoin, say 20, it was 2017, with that huge price run up. I just, it clicked instantly because I had firsthand seen how businesses struggle with credit cards hmm. and then to see this solution, it's like, oh, this is perfect. Uh, but of course, uh, no business really wants to touch it because of its volatility and all the bad information about it and about hmm. how it can't be used as payment and all this stuff. So um, that just triggered me down a, a rabbit hole of, I don't know, 18 months or so. That eventually led me to quitting my job to work full time in the Bitcoin space, building apps, hmm. doing consulting, as you mentioned, and um, writing. And as I also have my own YouTube channel where I talk about various things going on in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency space. It's how I found you. God bless the interwebs. You're saying some <laughs> smart stuff about BSV. So I want to uh, jump on something really quickly there. So you were, through your own experience, looking at from a technical standpoint and seeing what it was costing businesses in terms of never mind your cost with the operational processes and all the overhead and legal worries. Um, what is it that leapt out at you so clearly about say Bitcoin protocol that, that when you looked at that side by side with how kind of current credit card processing was going on, made you say, well, we're like, this is crazy. Why are we doing this? Was there one, one big thing that said these eight yeah. factors are stupid. And what would those be? It's actually the very first paragraph of the Bitcoin white paper. Um, whoever wrote it, which I, we know who wrote it, but um, Satoshi clearly understood these problems that I had been facing for the last five years or so mm. um, in my work firsthand. And, you know, me, I'm just a consultant, but for the businesses, it's even worse, right? Yeah. So I had seen these issues and he, he talked about 
how they need to be fixed and how they're a problem. And so that that first per- the abstract really spoke to me. It clearly said, okay, this is this is a, a solution. Um, primarily, some of the things were they they admitted that it's impossible to do commerce online without certain a certain degree of fraud, which is absolutely correct. No matter how robust the security is, um, customers still find ways to get over on the merchant. The merchant might still have some type of data leak because if they have a big enough honeypot, that's an incentive to go oh, out. Oh, yeah. Them, right? It's worth the chase. Absolutely. Exactly. What did Target? I mean, the guys got into Target, went into the yeah. HVAC contractor. Talk about genius. <laughs> yep. I remember that one. Yep. And they were keeping stuff in a text file. Well, they <laughs> keep stuff in a text file, but also reminded me, I was I was privileged to speak at Microsoft's research uh, annual thing in, in Redmond a few years ago. And oh. one of the Microsoft researchers gave a great talk. The title of which, and he said, he said, I apologize in advance. I could not find any other way to phrase this. But the topic of his talk was, why the fuck does my light bulb need an IP address? <laughs> right. And his point being like, you just, no one understands the massive increase in the security threat surface you've created by networking all this stuff that, you know, you could screw a light, light bulb and you can see that it's off by looking at it. You don't need it to tell, you know, a centralized computer that anyway, but it's that's that's an important point. So for all those reasons why in cybersecurity there's so many penetration points, that's why. And you were seeing it in real life as you were putting the systems in. Like this is crazy. There's no way you can do this securely. Yep. And then the um, the other part was the irreversible payments. Mm. So um, with Bitcoin, to me, that is a huge feature of it. Obviously, there's some issues with it, but really what it what it makes is it more like cash transactions. Mm-hmm. Because a big problem with, um, yeah, I mean, I could talk about one of the clients. They um, chargebacks are always a huge problem, especially when you ship stuff. Right. So if right. you if you're an online retailer and you ship, you take the authorization for the money, but that you know that doesn't actually you don't actually get the money till maybe thirty days later, which is another issue with credit cards. Um, even though everything looks great to the customer, but the merchant doesn't actually get paid until way later. Right. Um, so they, let's say they pay $200 for goods on, online and then you ship the goods. Again, you haven't hit the, the money hasn't hit the business's bank account yet till maybe 30, 60 days. If the customer just lies and says, I, actually, you know, I didn't get that. Right. They can just file a complaint with their bank. And then not only does the merchant not get paid, they ship the goods, then they get hit with a chargeback fee. Right. So it's gone. Their stuff has been stolen and they're paying for the right to have been robbed from. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. That's a great now, system. Why, why would you want to fix that? <laughs> so the, the one client in particular, they had in this and this is another thing. This is not advice to anyone, but AR uh, departments, accounts receivable departments are generally toothless when they try to seek collections from customers, because in this scenario, yeah, sure. They're, they had a huge list of customers who had done this, maybe on accident, probably most on purpose, that right. they would reach out to. I think they had hundreds of thousands in collections that they needed to go after, but they, they would never be able to get it. I mean, they had a routine where they would call, but the customer can just, you know, give them Ignore the thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, but I just saw you on Instagram holding the thing you said that was lost. That was yeah. <laughs> So to be able to do irreversible payments instantly, uh, fix completely solves that problem. Right. Of course, now you get into okay. Well, what if there's an actual dispute? 
Well, to me, that just goes back to more honest business, right? The customer would need to, you know, demonstrate that they were wronged. And then they go directly to the merchant and say, hey, I'm going to ship you the goods back. Give me the money back. And it's that simple. Right. Yeah, interesting. So so you're, you're got a moment of clarity with uh, the Satoshi's white paper was, was because it resonated. You saw actually you were living in real life, the operational issues and technical issues that he pointed to as, you know, at least some of the rationale for creating the system, even though right. blockchain oh. was already decades old by that time. But this is his application that was going to make things better. Okay. And there, from there, there was, was, go ahead. There was one more piece in it that was, that's probably my favorite part of the white paper. And this is all still, we're only on the first page, right? I, I didn't even need to get, I mean, I did read the rest and I'm not going to go through that here, but I'm just saying all this stuff was just on the first page. Right. The other part was, um, is there's a line in there about how um, because of this system of the way it exists now, that merchants have to get more info from customers than they otherwise would have to, mm. right? Because not only do you need to get their stuff to ship, which is obviously necessary, but you need all this other stuff like billing address, phone number, email, maybe name, right? right? Um, because right. in essence, you're actually extending credit to this person. You're not, you're not selling something per se. You're actually yeah. extending credit so that you have to do a credit check, basically. Yeah, because all that stuff is linked to authorize a credit card. But if you think about it, if you take all that away and just use Bitcoin, the only thing they need to know is your shipping address. They don't even need to know your name because a lot of people use fake names for their shipping address, right? right. So you have a way more private transaction. And then because if that name is not linked to the address in the database, then for a merchant side, not only are you storing less data, but now you have less risk. Yeah, you don't care if someone hacks it because it's like whatever, fine. Back away, you got you got a a list of public wallet addresses. Okay, exactly. Compared and? to <laughs> compared to now, which is you know, so they've gotten away from storing credit cards now. They they use a different process to do it, but they still have to link all this info, and it's just the customers, the merchants don't want that info at all. Yeah, like if they could offload it, they would, but they have to because of this system. So that was another part that clearly Satoshi understood now since then have you worked on, on applications for folks to actually implement this so that they are moving towards this solution set or is it still in the early days of market adoption no i haven't and i i think it's that it's the it's still the early days um i did try for a bit to get the company um i was working at to look at some of this stuff but um this it was a sign of the times like you just had Everyone, all big companies at that time were looking at ETH, um, Hyperledger, you know, all these Fugazi solutions that never <laughs> were going to work. And now, now it's funny because three years later, I think it's now understood in that arena that all that stuff doesn't work, which is, you know, funny because I was just early, right? And that's, think- that's really curious because this is, a, this is a, a point in which a lot of my listeners certainly... Um, you know, I'm, I'm just dangerous enough to know enough to probably make bad decisions, right? But a lot of the folks I speak with who are very smart in their own professional lives and many who work in professional money management say, this is terra incognita. Like they've got no sense whatsoever. So when someone who understands it deeply says, I knew Hyperledger and Ethereum weren't going to work, what do you mean by that? And, and why should, what do you mean by that? And how do you put that to someone clearly so, so they can see what you see? as to why some of these protocols work and some of them don't. Yeah. 
So I guess I'll start. I'll start with Hyperledger first. Um, that to me was clearly one of these marketing schemes to just try to sell someone snake oil. Because, for example, with with the software I use, we were using SQL, right? Mm-hmm. All our clients had SQL databases, which were private databases, right? Yep. If you wanted to do this, simulate this private blockchain thing they were selling, all you got to do is give third-party access to your database to certain tables, and now you have a private blockchain. Right. So th- there's nothing new. Like, there's no point in having a blockchain that three people can access because you can achieve the same thing. There's nothing, you know, you can just make an append-only database that you share with your vendors, which is, I mean, that already happens, right? I mean, there's right. integrate. This is this is 80s. This is tech from the 80s. Sure. Like, this is, yeah, this we're not changing. We're not innovating anything. No, buddy. To be fair, all, you know, there, I, I, there's a to me, there's a vague yet bright line between clever marketing language and fraud. Oh, right? of course. You're not lying. No, they're not okay. lying. Okay, but I but we used to laugh because you, you remember the old movie um, with Dustin Hoffman, The Graduate. You ever see that? where it's it's adult worth seeing before i was born frankly but a very funny movie and in it he's a recent college graduate and it's a movie in the 60s where you know kids are discovering that like working hard and middle class lifestyles nonsense the usual stuff but at his graduation party one of his father's friends walked up to him and says i got one word for you plastics plastics we'll talk right and so we've been laughing for years now because we keep saying we got one word for you blockchain right <laughs> and, and, you know, if, if for all the year, last five years where someone said, you know, I'm creating a blockchain company. Woo. If you said the exact same thing as I'm creating a distributed database company, you get crickets. Right. So yeah. to some extent, it's the market's fault for not understanding that listening to a magic word versus something substantive. So so for, from your point of view, Hyperledger was not a particular value because it didn't do anything particularly innovative but it claimed to be revolutionary. Is that a fair summary of your position? Fair enough. And it was also a way for companies like the one I worked at to kind of get in on the game, you know, because everyone had FOMO about blockchain, right? Because like you just said, not only is it pushing for the uh, entrepreneurs and the innovators, but also the companies that feel left out. They're like, oh, we got to do something blockchain. Right. Got to be blockchain. (laughs) We use IBMs because they're respect. They've been around forever. They clearly, they know what they're talking about. Right. Right. Didn't we just hire a 22 year old? Give it to her. Blockchain. Go get it. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. So that's Hyperledger. Now, but substantively, aside from it not being new, was there any use to it? I mean, was it, was it a tool that was, that was usable or is it just completely pointless? I don't know any, I mean, I know they announced some proof of concept projects, but I don't know any that took off that did okay. anything. So, so more importantly, or more relevantly, as time is always constrained, Ethereum, what, what would, because most people, even people who don't know much that the crypto markets have heard about Bitcoin and ETH, you know, Ethereum. So what to you would be the, I certainly know what Craig thinks is wrong with Ethereum, but, but you know, what, what, in your opinion, when you looked at Ethereum, you're like, nah, I don't get it. Or, or you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, what was your, what was your criticism there? So I, I think that what, unfortunately, because of, well, with, with society today and how easy it is to learn how to code, 
that doesn't necessarily teach people what computer science is. No. And, and you know, I do have a degree in it, but I don't think that's necessarily rev- relevant. But piecing what Craig has said about how computer systems operate and with Bitcoin, Craig Wright, and, you know, his criticism of Ethereum, I did end up going back to what I learned in college about computer science and mapping it towards something like Ethereum. Hmm. Um, so what I, what I mean, the reason I'm bringing that up is because a lot of people that are coding now don't necessarily understand the bits and how computers work. Like, yeah. right, just because I can, because someone can code and maybe they can build a great app doesn't necessarily mean they get computer science. And that's pluses and minuses. No, it's it's interesting yeah. you say right. that because I had I had Conrad Wolfram on a little while ago, who's you know one one of the parts of uh, Wolfram Systems Mathematica, and we we're having that very chat about because his whole thing is about modernizing math mathematical education in secondary schools uh, mm-hmm. in the UK and the US and elsewhere because of that very thing. Like you don't have to become on the path to becoming an advanced number theorist to know how to do calculus well, right? So. Right. I understand yeah. your point, but like from 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 society's point of view, I think it's great that more and more people learn how to code in, in Python yeah. to get stuff done. But I don't want to I don't want to put the word the the the, the point in your mouth. But your criticism of that dynamic of people being able to code without really understanding computer science, why do you, where do you think that's a problem when it comes to things yeah. like Ethereum? Yeah. Um, and you're exactly right. That's that's exactly what I wanted to say is that that's not a bad thing. But if you're going to make something called the world computer, you need to understand computer science. And clearly, in my opinion, Vitalik, the guy who created Ethereum, there's no way anyone who understood computer science would ever create something like that. Huh. And what, how can like, what are some of the characteristics? Because it is it is a single threaded computer. And this is and I don't under, I don't know how many people don't understand uh understand this right it's sequential right the reason that the gas fees are so out of control is because you're basically having to compete with all these other users to get your your thing to write to this computer next right that's why the fees spike when a lot of people are using it that's why you could pay two hundred dollars or five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars in gas fees so that's an important point because people will have heard of gas fees and that it costs a lot and and many people who aren't even very much well-versed in computer science would have heard about multi-threading, right? So the idea that you're going to break up, you know, the, if, if all you're going to do is speed up what you're doing sequentially, well, you'll get some speed from that. But right. the real speed comes from breaking it up and spreading a computational task across 7,000 CPUs, which would be 7,000 threads, basically. But what he, but Ethereum is based on a single-threaded process. So literally it's like, the, the old days where you'd have to book time on the supercomputer in your computer science lab when they told you you had between 2.30 a.m. and 4 or 15 a.m., you wake up and did it. Kind of similar idea, right? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's why with this massive competition, because I need to get this transaction done right now, then it's kind of like booking an Uber during peak times. You're just paying way yeah. too much. Yeah. That's really because stupid. These... Can that be fixed? No. All these... Um... Because all these nodes, the guys who are mining Ethereum, they're they're updating the same state constantly, but only one person can do that at a time. It's it's completely the opposite of Bitcoin, where it's a UTXO unspent transaction model, where 
you have coins. And you, no coin knows about the existence of another. Therefore, you can just process it. As you just mentioned, Satoshi, again, from the very beginning said this. You just throw more CPUs at it. Right. It can, he said when he created an 09, it can scale to beat Visa today in 2009. Right. So if this one just, knew, it overflows to the next one. You've got them all lined up and computing power yeah. is cheap as hell. So if, this you, should not be expensive. If you want to process a thousand, you do it multi-threaded. You just throw more CPUs. Done. And again, that was in 2009, right? We had way right. less compute power. And it's even more of a joke when you, when you remember that everyone today is walking around with a supercomputer in their pockets. Right. Yet we're told this world computer is supposed to change the future when it's not even nearly as strong as something in our pockets, right? Yep. But so it's just, it's such a huge model away and it's never going to work. Um, this is why they keep saying, oh, we're going to do sharding. Sharding sounds a lot like threading, doesn't it? Multi-threading. It's just sure double speed for multi-threading. It sounds kind of sci-fi sexy too. It's like Keanu yeah. Reeves and throw shards at people. <laughs> but they've never implemented it. They've right. never implemented it. Now, how I've I've spoken to a bunch of folks who, and we're doing some stuff on Ethereum because of smart contract nature and because of what we're doing within the commodity space, time doesn't matter. So we can always schedule our transactions when it's very, very low cost. But there are other folks who are working, I guess we're calling it layer two now, sounds fancy, um, which is more like, I guess, taking a whole bunch of transactions, solving them all here before I then actually take them to the, the so that kind of, creates virtual, it's like a virtual machine, multi-threading, but you still have to go back to the original single thread at some point. And so then that becomes a, a timing system of when it's going to be cheap to report this batch of trades to the thread. Yeah, and I think that's why the sharding has never been implemented because that problem you just described is too difficult to actually, to practically solve. Huh. Because it, it might work for, okay, let's say if you're one group of, one group of people or of developers or apps doing that, right? That, in theory, that should work, okay? You were doing 700 a day, you do 700 offline, and then you bulk upload, right? But then, like, you got all these nodes. So what if, you, what if more people start doing that? Then you got another group doing it here, and it, they all still have to... It's, it's, you're just kicking the can down the road, right? Because the more people that do that, you still end up with the same issue, right? Right. Well, what I found so funny from, from, from someone who's been involved in financial technology since the 90s, right? And having you know built exchanges, I helped was on the selection committee for one of the first electronic bond market, you know, exchanges that became huge or trading platforms, not exchange, trading platform. And what I find hilarious is that for it's not it's not just guilty in the Silicon Valley, but it's across across the world that we that, that we constantly recreate the same thing. And that's fine, right? But it's always good to have a sense of history. Because nothing makes nothing's funny when someone tells me, you know, this is the fastest thing ever built. I'm like, you kidding me? We were doing 30 times that number of transactions per second in 1999. Like, what are you talking about? It's not fast. Maybe new. You may be getting a lot of money from VCs, but it's not faster. So I guess the, the, the major question is for those people who, especially in the recent, you know, bloodbath in crypto markets or what people are calling crypto markets, maybe it's a thought there, right? Because there are all, all any reasonably interested person who knows nothing about this hears is there are 300 or 6,000 or 60 gazillion coins and they all, one's got a picture of a dog in it, right? And like, what does any of it mean? And where, where do you see any value aside from, well, do you ever see any value in any of them? In any of the cryptos? Any cryptocurrencies, yeah. Like any of it, 
that you've seen. And I'm just curious about your reasons. Like, what do you think made sense? Will still make sense? What was just, you know, pure nonsense? People try to take advantage of people. I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So I'll I'll end the previous um, point about that I think is related with Ethereum. You know, I did trash it, but the reason they made it was because of things you couldn't you can do on Ethereum that you could not do on Bitcoin which is valid, right? Which is this whole global state thing. I can understand the draw of that, right? And I think that's why so many people are building on it. Even though it doesn't work and the fees are too high, I can understand to do this smart contracting type stuff because that is kind of new, right? The the idea of having something public that you have all these people changing the state of constantly to be able to do these smart contracts. The, The issue is it doesn't really work. Like it's not going to work at scale because the fees will just get higher and higher and higher. Um, Bitcoin can't do that type of stuff, not at the base layer. And that's the reason that it scales, because it's right. just a trade-off that someone's going to have to accept. You're either going to have to accept, I can't do global state, that I'll have to make some other type of protocol to do this type of stuff. But you know, there's more overhead with running that, but you get kind of the same public benefits of it, you know, with the transaction IDs and being able to write to a public ledger. And for um, those people who don't understand these nuances, the yeah. when you say it won't work, um, it won't work because it won't scale. But in like in the near term, if I write as as you know, we're writing a commodity, basically a commodity offtake contract on Ethereum, yeah, smart contract, right? Satoshi, of course, yells at me and tells me it's not a, it's not smart, it's not a contract, but that's a debate for another day. Um, but you know, you, without without being too strictly strictly linguistic about the definition. Um, all it is is a simplifying way, right? It, it's, it's, I try to explain to people, it's like having an escrow account where your lawyer has to review a document and then release funds. Well, the Ethereum smart contract can basically play the role of your lawyer. If, the, if, the, if, if it gets notified that condition X has been met, meaning the box of cobalt has been moved into the warehouse, then it will release the funds. Right? That's, it's, it's just automating some processes to take the human element of time wasting out of, out of the a loop. So you're not saying that won't work. What you're saying, I right. you think, is that it won't be scalable as the current code base to handle all that. So the protocol works, but the code as it's written won't work. Is that a fair statement? Not for Ethereum, because I think- the, But if you the change protocol- the Ethereum protocol to be multi, multi-threaded, it would then, but if you could do that, Right. I'm trying yeah. to make sure that I'm understanding your thought that it's the, the the poor coding structure that has made it not work. Whereas if it if the same exact sort of structure had been put in place, but with infinite scalability threading capacity, it would work. Is that a right is that a right statement or a wrong statement? No, I don't I think that it is fundamental issues of of how Ethereum works is why it won't hmm. won't work. So to okay. Speak. No, I now that concept though, that you just spoke of, I think is definitely going to be a thing um, where you where people interact with these things. I just think that it's just going to be education for folks to kind of understand how Bitcoin can do this type of stuff. Right. Because once that education is done and people start demonstrating that, the ability to do this type of contracting stuff, it's just not going to be like how they envisioned it on ETH. If you can do it for, you know, way fraction of the cost, then that's kind of what I mean is won't work is that when 
presented with an alternative solution that's good enough, then that's going to be the one that's used versus one that's you know too cost prohibitive. So Bitcoin could beat this by without changing how Bitcoin base layer works. Instead of trying to capture all of that massive amounts of data on the blockchain, it could do API callouts to take the place of my my human lawyer in that instance. Right. So there exactly. could be references to other databases or sources or triggers that would kind of play the role of the human in the escrow account. Is that a fair way for people to look at it? Yeah, that's one way you could do it. And then you could do like offline transactions where you pass data along using the Bitcoin protocol and then settle on chain to where, okay, the final transaction kind of has the attestation of what went down. Maybe it's multiple signatures or something like that. And then and then that, that's more private, too, because you're not putting everything, all the noise sure. on chain, right? Well, what's similar to in, in developed markets, in equities markets, right? You know, you've got the New York Stock Exchange and a bunch of other exchanges and a whole bunch of alternative trading systems where they all trade the same stocks. But, you know, analogously would be kind of what we call upstairs block trading, right? If you try to buy 700,000 shares of a stock that on an average day only trades 800,000 shares, you're going to wildly move the market, right? But it's not illegal and it's not against regulatory rules. For me, you know, say, you know, a big public pension fund to call Goldman Sachs's sales desk and say, I want to sell 700,000 shares at X. It's not illegal for them to call around the market and say, hi, I've got a seller without divulging. I've got a seller at, at, at this level. Do you want to buy? And that buyer could be another pension fund, could be, could be anybody, right? They can say yes. And the instant that trade's agreed, the trade itself is instantly reported to the exchange, right? It's it's one of the big sort of arguments. It's been a long-running argument in market structure about is that added liquidity kind of fair, right? Shouldn't the whole point of these these markets be that the whole market gets to see it before before you know? There's a lot of arguments about that, but what you just described is analogous to that, right? You could do all the work off the chain on the phone or face-to-face about this complicated real estate transaction. And then when all the terms are agreed, you post the results of the chain. Right. Yeah, makes sense. And it's, it's probably something that people would be more comfortable doing. I mean, that's one of the things that yeah. m- makes most kind of traditional, I love it, they're calling it TradFi, like that's the, 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 a, a scurrilous thing. More kind of boring old bankers are never going to just set things off with the machine. I'm never going to do it. Yeah. So this is the great way where we're going to bring those efficiencies and that immutability and that audit trail yeah. without stopping people from doing their jobs. Right. That's cool. So sorry, back back to the, the coin question. So what, you know, your 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 vision of brilliance was Satoshi's white paper and now you've been in the space a while. You know, when all these other coins pop up, like what what has been your impression? Is it uniformly that's ridiculous, uniformly that's great, or probably more nuanced? Well, the the point I come from, which you know, I do question, but in my view, all the other coins exist under the assumption that Bitcoin didn't work. Huh. But that assumption, in my view, is false, which in my opinion, that undoes the need for every other cryptocurrency because it if you're if you're going to make a new chain right now i think in the beginning when there was only maybe 15 to 20 cryptos you know we had litecoin eth ripple right yeah perhaps there was some honesty like even though vitalik in my view is kind of a scammer i don't think he when he created it he intended to fleece people 
I think he really did want to um, make something that he thought Bitcoin lacked, which is, is actually kind of funny because I, if Bitcoin hadn't disabled all the stuff, all the uh, scripting capability, this was around 2012, 2013. He might not have built it. He might he might not have ever built Ethereum. He might have just done it on Bitcoin using the script. But uh, you know, I don't, I don't, that. because that's not even something I'm very familiar with. What what, yeah. what was that event when they you referred to in 2012? What were they doing? So Bitcoin? over over time, they've they completely BTC is completely different from what Satoshi created. Hmm. Um, they they ripped out all the useful coding things you could do. And, um, for like six transaction types. You can only do six different types of transactions on BTC. Um, but originally there were, I want to say 80 to 100 different opcodes, like, you know, math opcodes. So like add, multiply, divide, um, hashing, um, check the version of the transaction. I'm just scratching the surface here, but right. different things to be able to do conditional spins, right? Um, and BTC and was, is what everyone... When everyone, someone in the press is talking about Bitcoin, they're referring to BTC now. That's right. Okay, so go ahead. But originally, Satoshi had all these programming things you could do to evaluate uh, the validity of a transaction. Um, where you could do this type of smart contracting stuff. Now, you couldn't do state because, like I said, a transaction, transaction A doesn't know anything about transaction B in Bitcoin. And that's why it scales, because they can just proce be processed in mm. parallel. But it had script at the transaction level to where you could do, like I said, eva logical evaluations. But they ripped all that out over, over the course from starting in 2010 through 2015. I think they've, they finally gutted it all. And who is they? Because popular mythology has it that no one controls Bitcoin. Right. It's this distributed thing. Yeah. So who is the they? That, it's that, the that. Bitcoin core developers and Blockstream is one of the companies that employs some of the Bitcoin de developers. So they, they, they have access to this GitHub where they kind of dictate what the code is and then they distribute that to all the nodes and the miners. Huh. Um, so that, but yeah, they, they took all the stuff out, all the useful stuff out. Huh. And so that would be perhaps one instance where at least a European and democracy means four idiots rule three wise people. For whatever reason, they decided this was going to be, do they give stated reasons? Do they say this was for simplicity? Do they give any reasons at all? They just change. Yeah. yeah they, um, they thought it was too dangerous. That, dangerous. Um, Cause theoretically, if someone doesn't know what they're doing, they can lose their money, right? You can, you can make a script that can't be unlocked. That has right. no solution. For example, like you could do opt to add, uh, sorry, opt to add op equal five or something. Basically, you write some math script that's unsolvable, right? Like where you can't, where you, you couldn't put three as it. I, I'm, you know, I'm messing that well, up. So, for, in layman's terms, out. you basically could have put a, 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 a randomized uh, 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 lock on your, on, your, your, on your shipping container with 78 gazillion possible solutions you lost the solution yeah something like that okay so you do something like really you do a hash yourself that would lock up the system and you could not unlock it yeah and they so they, they took things out like that because people could make errors okay that's that's the justification they justification. gave justification fair enough that's why they limited the six types because those are safe 
And right. if you know anything about the word safe, where a group is trying to tell you what's safe, you yeah. kind of under, if you can think past the second order consequences, you really understand what they're saying. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, and now for those who have scratched a little surface, they thought their headaches were large enough. There's BSV, which is also claiming to be Bitcoin and arguably is OG Bitcoin. So you, what, what, how would you compare and contrast if someone said, you know, BTC, BSV, what am, what am I looking at? What's the difference? Yeah. So BSV is really just the closest version of Bitcoin that Satoshi actually created. So it did restore almost all of those opcodes I mentioned to allow you to do this smart contracting stuff. It took out a lot of the limits that were added into the software to allow it to scale. And it just, it reverted a lot of the stuff that was put in over the last eight, no, 14 years or whatever to Bitcoin that was never in there in the first place. So it's not the exact version that he created because there's still some stuff that are, some things that are off, but it is the closest one uh, that whatever Satoshi actually created. And it is, frankly, this is an amazing thing to me. I mean, I guess it's not because of where these coin prices have gone and the biases that it's created, but if, if, if you just compare it to anything, if you have an inventor that creates something and they say, this is clearly what the software is for, and then it gets changed to something completely different than what the inventor made it, then it cannot be what the inventor made, created. Right. Right? You can't call it the same thing because it's not. And that's what, that's what everyone's been told about BTC. It's nothing close to what Satoshi made. Right. Whereas BSV is the closest. I would say 90% is close to what he released in 2009. Now, is that is BSV getting you know, incrementally more and more adoption in the market? Is it, are they just competing directly with one another now for, for uses? Or and that would also be a good question people ask: Is in your opinion, why on earth did anything go from eight cents to eighty thousand dollars to? I mean, really, what was I mean, What's your interpretation of, of any of that? So, should I start with the price part or the? You pick. Go go both. I I, I throwing a lot at you. You, Take take it. Smorgasbord of fun answers. (laughs) The the competing part. I think critics would probably laugh at me if I said they were competing. Um, In my view, there's really no competition Um, in terms of transaction volume. BSV will do a block, a single block in ten minutes that has more transactions than BTC does in a single day. Or. I don't even know how much less of a cost. I mean, but what are those transactions? They're just more buying and selling BSV at this point, or they're actual real commercial transactions being enabled by it? There, I would say it's primarily application transactions. Um, as far as to a degree of how much of those are truly commerce and not like applications, uh, sorry, businesses doing transactions for themselves kind of. All right, so you would say a transaction is also anything that's kind of computationally part of that process mm-hmm. is the way you'd be using right. the word transaction. Okay, not, yeah, not, exactly. not a value transaction, just an operational transaction, technically. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, those are dominant on the Bitcoin SV chain, primarily doing data or uh, doing like second layer protocol transactions. Like the top one right now is this game called Crypto Fights where they log every game action onto the chain. And that's that's become a big debate around people because some folks call it spam. Um, but, you know, 
The reason it would they also do seem it, to overwhelm. If you did that for Fortnite, you would radically overwhelm every single data center on the planet. Yeah. The the reason these guys do it is because they do they have multiplayer ga- gaming, like you fight each other in this like dice rolling game. Right. Um, the reason they do it is uh, for cheating, is because they want to log everything so that they sure. can one they can replay the matches. So it's kind of cool actually that someone else can go in and see a match that someone else played. But you can also you. Because it's like you're logging all this stuff, it's very it'll be very easy to catch discrepancies about, you know, if someone just gets overpowered and then kills the other player, well, every that's a that's a big, you know, if you were looking at a chart, it'd be like, you know, that's that's not that would be a, that would stand out. Right. right. So that's that would the be you're looking for a it. bug or a cheat code or something like that just shouldn't happen. Okay. Yeah. But that's the reason that hmm. they do it. Whether it's value add or not, well, you know, I mean, it's really no one's right to question what a business. If someone's willing to pay for it, right? Exactly. If you want to pay for the compute power and the infrastructure, we're, that's your thing. Yeah. Go right ahead. <laughs> yeah. So that that's what it is. Um, a lot. Some of it's social media posts, uploading pictures, uh, token transactions, NFTs, this sort of stuff. Right. Um, so in terms of scalability, BSV, in my view, has already destroyed the narrative that Bitcoin can't scale. Um, another reason is the fees have gone down 20 times on BSV in the last two years. The fee rate has gone down 20 That's a significant savings. Yeah. That's more in line with Satoshi's original vision. Exactly. Hmm. So, and depending on, and depending if you're willing to wait, you can go, it's gone down 100x. You can even take that further. So, Hmm. um, it's just, in my view, it's only a matter of time especially as the markets continue to crash, because what I'm seeing is more and more people are questioning these narratives. Like, I think that, I think the narrative that BTC is an inflation head is finally over. I mean, no one's going to take that seriously now, especially after all these scams. Of- <laughs> I gave yeah. such huge credit to anyone that was able to look into a camera and sell that without their, without even twitching a smile. I mean, God bless. That's hucksterism at its finest. <laughs> I saw I saw one of these guys go on CNBC or something and still say it after it dropped to 19k. Well, of course. What else is he going to say? He's talking his book. This is existential now. This is also potentially him staring out at the world between a pair of bars for the rest of his life. So you bet he's he's continuing to say that. Well, they gas up the G5 to go to you know go to South America, but I digress. So yeah, so the the the, the price movement. I mean, did. What was your view as this happened? I mean, I, I was happy to share my thoughts, but like as you watch this with not just Bitcoin and Ethereum and Litecoin and and you know, but like there's a string of them all the way down, Solana, Cardano, and you know, dozens of others, right? I mean, what? Obviously, people thought, "Wow, I can I've got a magical money machine. I can issue this coin and claim it's going to save the world and make mm-hmm. seals happy at night and bunnies protected from predators and here buy it." And if you'll buy that, part of me is like, from a let's say fair guy, like you're free to make your own stupid errors, right? But I don't know, what were your thoughts? Yeah. So um, I would say 95% is Tether. So um, Tether is stable coin, quote unquote, so-called right. stable coin that I believe was made in 2016. But it's basically the idea, what it's, what it's presented as is a mechanism for people to give this company dollars, and then they give you a cryptocurrency called Tether, 
which is supposed to represent a single dollar. Very clever. It's tethered to the dollar. Smart. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but it can't be because just computational costs alone will mean the closest it could ever be to a dollar is like 98 cents. Yeah. It just can't be a dollar for dollar. But anyway, so that was their myth. You give me your dollars, I'll give you dollars back in something called tether, but read the fine print that's really it's really valueless. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> they I think it was created in 2016. And the value proposition was well, if you're in, depending on what country you're in, you can't deposit dollars into say Binance because they're they at the time they were a Chinese exchange, right? Right. And they had most of the trading pairs for different currents cryptos. So if you wanted to use Binance, you had to find a way to get dollars over there. Or you'd have to take the risk, the currency risk of like, say, BTC or ETH and sending it over. Not only the currency risk, but the high fee, right? So right. just so your dollar automatically became 67 cents before it hit Binance, right? But yeah. you're, you're getting into the game. So, yeah. All right. <laughs> so I'm just going to talk about the honest way. It was the honest way. It was. Yeah, let's say the honest way, because that'll be startling enough. <laughs> so. You buy Tether and then you send it because now you're just sending a crypto coin that's always allegedly $1 and these exchanges respect that. You send that to Binance and then you can do your trade. So it's basically like virtually depositing dollars into these offshore exchanges. And then right. you can move that to another exchange if you want to and so on. Um, unfortunately, um, we all know the Tether's just issued, right? We just have to trust them that they're actually backing those dollars, those Tethers with actual dollars. We don't know because there's many famous iterations of them being well, we audited. Know by definition, they can't because the company has operational expenses. So unless there are dollars from somewhere else, by definition, it can't be one for one. Yeah. Can't. I mean, I remember when I first heard Tether and others, these stable coins, and someone was talking about it. I said, are you listening to yourself? Are you just smoking pot at work? What are you talking about? They have operational costs. <laughs> I mean, the Congress wants to cancel the penny every five years because it costs 2.8 cents to make a penny. Like, what? anyway, go on. <laughs> so that, that was the use of Tether. But I think what's happened is they've, got, they've clearly gotten drunk um, and they've, they've done the same thing that kind of fiat-based uh, governments do, which is they, they can all never resist the temptation to print money, to print more so. than what you actually have. So um, but Tether lacks a judicial system instead of prisons and a military to back up their fiat, which are major right. limitations. <laughs> right. So um, to, to, go, to finally answer your question about why the price has gone up, I think 95%. And the reason is because if you look at a chart of Tether's supply and BTC, or really Tether's market cap, because it's just one times the supply, um, Start, start at the beginning of 2017 when BTC was a thousand bucks. Tether was less than half a million. I'm sorry, yeah, less than half a million or something, or maybe a few million. Um, sorry, less than half a billion, right? So maybe, maybe 500 million. Maybe, maybe, I don't even know if it was that high. Um, and now, uh, let's just end it at, let's cherry pick and end it at November 2021 when BTC was 70K. Uh, Tether's supply was 68. No, 84 billion. Crazy. So so in theory, people gave this company $68 billion. I find that insanely hard to believe. Yeah. And that <laughs> uh, 84 billion. 84. So, hey, oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Wow. So $84 billion. So clearly that's nonsense. 
So if you look at the chart from again the beginning of 2017, the there is a strong linear correlation between Tether's supply and BTC's price. That is, I mean, that's almost impossible to, to deny. Right. BTC Tether's market cap has gone up eight a hundred something times. BTC is from what's a thousand seventy x in price. So that is that because say okay, I was. Smart enough, drunk enough, lucky enough, and I got myself a hundred thousand Bitcoin at eight cents because we I happened to be there, right? And I forgot all about it, and I went, you know, sailing for six years, and I came back, and suddenly I'm a quote unquote billionaire. So did I take? So I took three billion dollars worth of my BTC position that I bought for six cents a coin, and then I bought Tether. Tether then recorded that as six billion dollars. Is that is that is that how that run run up happened, right? Because I didn't I didn't take six billion dollars and give it to Tether. I gave them six billion dollars worth of BTC, and if they accepted that, they then said, "Well, you now have six billion dollars worth of Tether, Tether," which by our definitional documents means it's six billion dollars. But that's a sleight of hand, and that's nonsense. Is that I'm pretty that sure that's problem? what they were doing? All right. I think that's uh, because there's a couple points here. Um, the other side of that, and I guess this is a good reason to cherry pick November 2021, is since then, Tether stopped printing. And as such, they've actually been redeeming and they've redeemed almost a fourth of their supply. Now their market cap is down to $65 billion, and the BTC price has gone down to $20,000. So the market cap of the coins outstanding or the market cap of the coin that, that, that owns Tether? I want to make sure my, we're hearing the, the right Tether. Um, but and when I say market cap, I should really say supply because it's supply, same thing. right? So that's the 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 dollar denominated valuation on the supply is the technical if if wordy way to say that, right? yeah. Which may or may not relate in any fundamental way to how many actual dollars they have in their vaults that they can right. redeem for. Okay, so well, I mean I think that tells you a lot, right? Because if they've redeemed the fourth of their supply, but that crashed the BTC price by seventy percent. That tells you there's derivatives going on here and there's not really the backing that they say there is. Right. But I, I think the reason the way they pumped it is that they never got these types of uh, initial fiat deposits to issue these tethers. They just created numbers on a digital screen, which, you know, we never heard of that concept before. Send it to Modern monetary screens. theory. There you go. It's all Send the it same. It is working Congress. Anyway, sorry, I digress. We'll get to that another day. Okay, so yeah, right. So they're basically it's an accounting fiction. They they yeah. they they if they had never claimed that each each tether unit was tied to one dollar, well, who would be involved in the business to begin with? But but that fundamental sin means that they have to be lying. And I don't mean that in the come come sue me for defamation way. I mean that in the from a logical standpoint without getting into legalities, so I'm sure they papered it legally beautifully. But to a logical mind, the contention that each unit of tether is actually represents one dollar, that's that's not true. Yeah, there's no okay. evidence. And oh, fair enough. in 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 some one of the court cases that's going after them, they had, and this was years ago, three, two or three years ago, they admitted that they only had 73 percent backing. Now, who knows if that's true or not, but that's what they said. Sure. So they've already said that they don't have the backing themselves. Yeah. And that was a long time ago. And to be fair, all fiat systems are confident systems, too. Your bank has 8% of 
you know, outstanding loans on reserve. So this isn't surprising. It's not like it's a wonderful world where you expect the dollars to be sitting there. So, you know, well, that in and of itself may not be a criminal act. It's oh, just yeah. a bit disingenuous, right? Because when I look at it from, from the commodities world, a lot of kind of gold-backed funds, right? well, you could be physically backed or you could be actuarially backed, right? And if you, if on a given day, or month, only up to eight and eight percent of your customers will demand their gold. Well, as long as you've got nine percent of gold of, of the worth of gold bars sitting there, you're good. If 100 percent of you come, you know, come and ask for redemption, you're screwed. So um, it may not be, it may not be, it may not be criminal. It may not be what people would call sort of kind of clear and honest accounting. But anyway, so that's 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 the major one. So the, the vast bulk of all these other coins people will hear about if they go search were just derivatives tied to tether or the, or people just made stuff out at a whole cloth and tried to float it. Well, if you look at the market movements of the crypto markets and, you know, air quotes, because it's not really markets, um, they all follow BTC. So right. one, a friend of mine said this to me a few months ago. He's like, imagine if there was any generic car news, and that all the car company, publicly traded car companies moved the same direction on that same news. Right. Like Ford, Chevy, Tesla, you know, there's something that comes out about, oh, uh, Americans bought more cars in Q1 than they did in the previous Q1. And all of them moved 10%. Right. That's how BTC is. But right. all these coins are supposed to solve a different problem. So it doesn't make any sense, right? Like if you, if BTC goes up 10%, why does everything else go up 10%? If BTC goes down 15%, everything else goes down 15%. It's, it's absolutely crazy. And it's all because of Tether is hyperinflated it from the last five years huh. to this huge bubble. And that, 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 is, that is certainly in line um, with the chat that we had publicly on Messy Times. Craig Wright came on. We talked a bit about this. And his comment was, there could only be one blockchain. Right. It was, and that I guess is his point is that and we didn't touch it in this way, but thinking about how you're you're putting it, um, I'm thinking about this one particular NFT, you know, uh, structure my company, my mining company is working on right now. The the price movement of that structure will depend solely upon the physical production and prices of the commodities we actually produce. It's got nothing to do. With the blockchain in which we put it, it's got. If I put it on an Ethereum structure, or I put it on Cardano, or I put it on something else, does it? That shouldn't matter. And if it does matter, that means there's something fundamentally wrong because those are not, as you point out, different markets. It's just one market, and it's a sentiment market with no fundamental value behind it. Now, you know, from my point of view, curious your thoughts. To me, this is the early innings of what will be, if done correctly, will become a very robust differentiated market in which there will be multiple offerings with multiple either cryptocurrencies or, or non-fungible tokens. To me, to, that's how I differentiate it, either fungible or non-fungible. Um, if they have real utility that, that buyers and sellers use, the valuation will be placed on the utility of the transaction not on the code it's written on. And no one will care if it's on Ethereum or it's going to start with gas fees and the like. But right. all, all, you know, Keteris Paribus, everything is the same in terms of cost of transaction. Who cares, right? Do you see that happening? Or do you see, yeah. you know, my, my concern is that this, this is so many people with so much money 
and especially retail investors, right? Nothing makes for better congressional hearings than retail investors getting fleeced because they were promised 9,000% returns and lost their pensions. So I mean, where, where, do, where do you see, you know, we are yeah. a year from now with this? Yeah, I think you're you're exactly, absolutely correct about um, the one chain thing. And, you know, I think it's hard for folks to believe that because of, you know, however many there are now, 10,000 or something. But if you think about it, I mean, you have coins that are in the top 15 or 20 that are really just ETH tokens. Right. Like Shiba Inu, USDC, even some, I don't know how much of Tether's on ETH, but you got some of these coins that don't even have their own blockchain. They're on ETH. Right. And the reason they're on It took me 20 there, minutes to create a coin on, on with solidity, just as, yeah. a, as a whim a month ago. So anyway, so a lot of them aren't even anything else but ETH with a different stamp on it. Yeah. So if... I think the reason they're on ETH, I mean, obviously the mint cost and the uh, gas prices are prohibitive, but I think the reason people put up with it is, well, one, they're probably scamming and making money on the ICO, but <laughs> because of network effects, right? right? Because ETH is where people want to be. But if you have a new solution where all that stuff goes away, you get all the benefits with none of the drawbacks, then that chain is going to suck up everything. So yeah, you can have all these other coins, but they're going to be on BSV because right. the, the price is going to be, I mean, it, I don't know. I run a site that I track a lot of the tokens minted on BSV. My database is almost 100 gigs now of all the different stuff, coins. Oh. And, and those are all the different corporate applications. Are they a lot of those applications just kind of product, you know, apps or actually commercially trading things? No, some of, none of them are serious enough to be commercially traded. Um, some of them are by, by businesses. Some of them are. Yeah. But um, the majority are people like testing and playing around. Sure. Because the mint, like I said, the mint price is so low. I mean, it costs you maybe, you know, I don't even want to, it's not even half a penny, less than that to mint however many tokens. Yeah. Um, but when, as more and more people do it, and then as, if the more serious businesses that do it, that's going to kind of create this void of value, like that'll just suck people in. Right. Because people will be like, oh, well, I'm going to mint over here. And then the next person sees, it. oh, OK, they went over there. I am, too. And then it's just like what's happening with ETH, except, again, none of the issues, just all the benefits. Hmm. Ah, well, that's interesting. Now, if there were any, um, like I deeply appreciate your time. This is fascinating. Are there any sort of real punchy leaveaways that, you know, you, you, you. If if you're trying to protect, you're at a family function, your great aunt's about to plunge money into the crypto markets. You know what do you, what's the wisdom you leave with people about how they should approach any of this? What the crypto stuff? It's any of it. Yeah, I mean, just what what's your overall thought? I mean, tech, technical, but more you know more generally for the generalist who is not a coder, who is not going to get on Solidity and build something on ETH, who's not going to understand how to use BSV. You just told them that it took off all the fetters BTC put on, so they might lose all their money by one slip of the slip of the keyboard. Right? They, commercially, where do you see the real value that comes out of this? And and yeah. you know, because you, you you're now in this space working on it full time. Yeah, where where do you see the huge value? And where do you see the incredible time sinks and value losses? Yeah. I think this whole kind of Web3 decentralized narrative, unfortunately, it's missing a lot. And that's why it's so easy to attack because a lot of people think we don't need it. But I think it's just because of the misunderstandings about how this, what this tech was supposed to do. Hmm. And I think the immutability, the, the, uh, the data, the hashing, 
the extremely cheap micropayment nature, basically stuff that we didn't have before. Um, doing that, enabling that type of stuff, to send money privately to anyone for you know almost nothing, that is still the value prop in my view. Um, taking money out of the state's hands because the state doesn't control it. No one really controls Bitcoin because it was set, just like Satoshi said. It was set from when he created. Right. Um, that is the value prop. And unfortunately, greed has just captured a lot of these people who at first had the correct idea, right? I mean, the early Bitcoiners before all these uh, shit coins were saying, oh, um, we're going to end the Fed. You know, right. we're, we're going we're gonna to take money back. And now all of them are just like, they, they basically want to beg the government for help. I mean, some of them are crying about the interest rate saying, you guys are crashing the BTC price. It's like, that was never what this was about. That, that I love. When I heard that, I roared with laughter. So the yeah. two should have nothing to do with one another <laughs> at all. Yeah. Like Kathy Wood over there, you know, from the ARC fund, blaming the Fed, talking about, you guys are, you guys are being irresponsible. It's like, oh, okay, it's their fault that you're... you're we'll keep propping up your fund yeah. at the expense of the rest of the economy and galloping inflation. Okay, yeah. Kath, we'll get right on that. Thanks for the hint. <laughs> yeah, not even JP Morgan was that brazen. Um, all right, well, thank you. So, there, so there, there, is, there is real fundamental value for the people who are paying attention to, you know, what Satoshi originally created, you know, the, the protocols and the code for, I guess, that BSV or, or the properly implemented... Uh, uh, you know, Bitcoin solution, which again took from stuff. Blockchains have been around for decades before then, right? That in and of this is new. And I had someone to speak with the other day who was very knowledgeable in this space. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the innovation in the white paper is delightful, but that was just cobbling together stuff that already existed. Now, in a, in a logical format and a, and a set of protocols that solve real problems, yeah, that is really innovative. But um, in and of itself, it was built on, you know, powerful things that came before. So, well, Joshua, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. It's been really interesting. And uh, final word? Anything? Yeah, I, I, to bring it full circle, is one of the big benefits of the micropayment is with credit cards, you, the minimum you can do online is like 25, 30 cents, something like that. So right. Bitcoin drops the floor so much. And that that probably is the root of why I got into this space in the first place. Brilliant. So that ability to do real micropayments will change commercial models for real and we'll make it work. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, uh, Joshua, for coming on. And to all my uh, happy listeners, please remember, save yourselves the brain pain and turn off the mainstream media because they are lying to you for profit uh, and tune into Messy Times. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs>